Lord Jesus, you stand at the center of this history and of everything else we're talking about. We invite you, Lord, to come and dwell among us. Come, Lord Jesus. Holy Spirit, please come and guide the direction of our thinking. How much interaction should there be in this um, pursuit? Lead us, Spirit of God. Bring forth that which is true and that which is enriching and that which will make us more effective in what you've called us to. So we entrust this time to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Um, I, I, I think um, we will just begin by looking at uh, page 146. And as you do that, I want to talk to you about the cover on ancient, in front of ancient worlds. I know obviously you've seen that. And, 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 and what, what an awesome image this is. Because it shows the Jewish candlestick or candle holder reminiscent of the um, light in the temple. And then coming out of that, the cross. And so it is a symbol of the fact that what we're really dealing with here is not two things. What we're really dealing with here is a continuum. That God began... Um, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, to put in place his plan of redemption. And that plan of redemption is still going forward. And that plan of redemption be involved him choosing the people of Israel in a special relationship. And even though the whole thought of that, to some of our sensitivities, might grate a little bit, and certainly throughout the world it grates a lot, it is an in, inescapable fact about God who is the boss and who does what he wants to do. And doesn't have to explain it to us and get our approval. And God decided that he would establish a unique relationship with the people of Israel. And he did that to bless the rest of us. He told Abraham that right up front. Abraham, this is all about you being a blessing to all the nations on earth meaning the Gentiles. So it isn't that God doesn't love us also. But he established this unique relationship with the people of Israel. And that is a relationship that he has not rescinded. He has not opted out of that. We are in the continuum of that act of grace where this God who created us against whom we have rebelled in our utter insanity I mean, think about it for a minute. We shook our fist in God's face. He happens to be the God who's spoken it all came into being. Do we really think we're going to win this? But in our arrogance, we shook our fist in his face and declared our own independence. And his response to that was mercy and the gift of his son that we might be redeemed. And that offer of redemption remains on the table until the final consummation of all things when God will God will act out his righteousness and that day is coming so um, 
if you just take a look at this, um, page 146, the, um, the events of what we will call um, uh, the First Testament, rather than the Old Testament. We're, now we're not picking Paul with the Old Testament. But um, just think for a minute about the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the difference between those ideas, and the idea of the First Testament and the Second Testament. Because the Old Testament is still as vital and as in force as it ever was. It hasn't gone... It, being old doesn't mean it's passé. So we have, we have grouped the um, events in the First Testament. Um, to begin with, in the beginning. And some of this, of course, we all, some of this we all, we know, you know, like, but we never know for whom this is new and who doesn't have all this in their mind. So we need a framework, all of us, to know the flow of the unfolding of the history of the of the first testament. So Genesis 1 to 11 in the beginning. So in that section we have the story of Adam and Eve. But we have others in there who walk with God. It isn't as though the knowledge of God on earth um, stopped when Adam and Eve sinned. There is this wonderful person called Enoch. Um, couched in this genealogy, you know, be careful with genealogies, you think there's nothing in there, all of a sudden you get treasures in there. We're right in the middle of this genealogy, we find Enoch, and Enoch walked with God. And Enoch was not, because God took him. So Enoch, in the midst of this fall, Adam and Eve sinned, Cain and Abel, Seth, they had sons and daughters, in the midst of all that lostness, here was Enoch who walked with God. And also Noah. Noah also walked with God. And so again, we trace the knowledge of God from Adam and Eve right on through until we get to uh, Abraham. And Abraham also knew God before God appeared to him. So then we get to the um, time of the patriarchs. Now, we've got the dates in here. And the dates, these dates are taken from the um, English, Standish, English Standard Version Study Bible. And as you probably know, there are two dates for the Exodus that scholars still can't really decide for sure which date the Exodus took place. So we have to just be okay with that. And one possibility is... Um, for 1446, and one possibility is 1260. So, based on the date of the Exodus, we get a little bit different dates for Abraham and the patriarchs. So that's where those different dates come from. But we move from um, that Genesis 1 to 11 section to the time of the patriarchs. And the patriarchs are Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, whose name became Israel, and Joseph. God appeared to Abraham. Abraham already knew God. God appeared to Abraham and told him, Genesis 12, 1-3, that God was going to establish a unique relationship with him and his descendants, and through this relationship, all nations on earth would be blessed. 
Now that covenant went from Abraham to Isaac. And that covenant passed from Isaac to Jacob. And then passed from Jacob to his 12 sons. So the, the 12 sons of Jacob, or the 12 sons of Israel, became the 12 tribes of Israel. So you get this covenant. Abraham, he had more than one son, but the covenant passed through Isaac. He had more than one son, the covenant passed through Jacob. He had 12 sons, it went to all 12 of those sons, and they became the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, they ended up in Egypt uh, in heavy bondage, and God sent the deliverer. We spoke a little bit about that this morning. Moses, he was the deliverer. And God used Moses to release the people of Israel from their bondage in Egypt into the wanderings in the wilderness for 40 years, and then under Joshua into the promised land. So we move from the period of the patriarchs to the period of the exodus, the desert, and the law. That's another incredibly rich um, section. The role of the desert and the role of the law. I wish there was more time to talk about that. Then the promised land. Joshua was Moses' disciple. And um, um, the people entered the promised land, but they didn't obey fully. And this takes us back into a little bit of what we were talking about this morning, what the Holy Spirit will do and what the Holy Spirit won't do. The Holy Spirit won't obey for us. We have to do that. I can't make myself holy on my own, but I can learn how to obey. And the Holy Spirit will empower us, but we've got to make the decision to do that. Well, the descendants of Abraham, the descendants of Israel, didn't do that completely in the promised land, and they paid the penalty for that. Then we move into the period of the judges. Two examples from that period of Samson and Samuel. By the way, it, 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 it reminds me to say again about ancient wealth. What you hold in your hands is a draft. That is wonderful covering everything. You might not think it's a draft, but it is a draft. It is a snapshot of where it was on June, July the 5th. So what's in here is just what was in here on July the 5th. So there's a lot more work that needs to be done. Then we move into the period of the United Kingdom. And we get the kings of Israel who ruled over Israel during the time that Israel was united. The first one was Saul. And he is a study in uh, carnality in leadership and the consequences of carnality in leadership. And then we come to David, a man after God's own heart, although he was imperfect and, and fallible and broken. He was a man after God's own heart. And he was a forerunner of the Messianic king. And then his son, Solomon. Now, after Solomon's reign, the kingdom of Israel was divided. It was divided into the northern kingdom. Ten tribes went with the northern kingdom. And the southern kingdom, two tribes went with the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom was called Israel, and the southern kingdom was called Judah. And the capital 
of the southern kingdom was Jerusalem, and the two tribes that made up the southern kingdom were the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. Judah is the tribe of David. So David's descendants um, reigned on the throne of Judah. And the northern kingdom of Israel were the ten other tribes. Now what I'd like to do is, is kind of pause there for a moment and go a little bit deeper into this period of the, of the kings because I think it's instructive and it's going to help us, I believe. It's going to be instructive to us as we um, consider how we view all this history. So let's um, see how we can do that. Let's take our Bibles. And, 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 and review here, starting in First uh, Kings 12. In one way, one of the more depressing periods of Israel's history. We we have we have noted here. We we noted here that. Um, in, in ancient worlds, I know I keep going back for it. Keep, keep your Bibles open. We are coming back to that. On page 148, kind of in the middle of the page there, there is a summary of the kings of Israel and Judah. Summary. Now, one of the most powerful things to me in this particular section of the history is that we get God's evaluation of the king. What did God really think of Augustine? What did God really think of St. Francis of Assisi? What did God really think of John Wesley? What did God really think of John Wimber? Well, we know what God thought about these kings because he tells us. And the northern kingdom of Israel had 19 kings. 19 kings. None of them did right in the eyes of the Lord. None of them. Not one. The southern kingdom of Judah had 19 kings. Eight did what was right in the sight of the Lord. So that's not a very good record. These were the kings of God's people. These were the kings of the descendants of Abraham. These were the kings, the rulers of the people with whom God made an irrevocable covenant. And the northern kingdom of Israel, 19 kings out of 19 did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the scriptures tell us they did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, let's go then to 1 Kings 12. And read a little bit about Jeroboam. Jeroboam um, became politically viable because Rehoboam, who was the Rehoboam, was the grandson of David. Now, the grandson of David. You know, this is the grandson. This isn't long. in a long time. So. 
How great is the dysfunction? When you can go from David to Solomon to Rehoboam, and all of a sudden you end with a king who did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So Rehoboam, because of his lack of wisdom and because of his arrogance, alienated himself from the ten northern tribes. That opened the way for Jeroboam to become king of the ten northern tribes, or the majority of the descendants of Abraham. Now, let me begin reading. If you look at, look at verse 25, and let's just um, dwell into some of this painful history. Notice what Jeroboam does. He, in effect, he in effect, and he's the king of Israel, he, in effect, sets up a rival religion. God had given the law, God had given the temple, God, the tabernacle, God had given the sacrifices, God had given the Levitical priesthood, God had laid all this into order. I am a holy God. This is how you are to worship me. This is how you are to approach me. Jeroboam sets up a rival religion motivated on personal ambition. Verse 25, 1 Kings 12. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. See, Jerusalem had the temple. So although Jeroboam had the majority of the people, he didn't have the temple. And without the temple, you can't do, you can't obey God. And he realizes, you know, if I don't do anything, there's going to be a pull of the temple in Jerusalem. People are going to start going back to Jerusalem, and they'll turn back to Rehoboam. Verse 28, so the king took counsel and made two cans of gold. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. This is pagan, flagrant, open, intentional idolatry. The people are being led into idolatry by their king. And he set one in Bethel, down in the south, and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin. This is how sin gets established. This thing became a sin. For the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places. See, it wasn't just the, these two calves. On all the different high places, he made places of worship. Obviously, this is idolatry and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. So this is just self-will. I'm going to set up my own places of worship. I'm going to set up places on the high hill. I'm going to set up my own priesthood. He's just acting in total arrogance and selfish ambition. Then Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the feast that was in Judah. 
you know, I've also, I've also got to have something to, to uh, be competitive with the Passover and, and all, all the different feasts. I'm going to set up my own feast. He offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made. Here's the king sacrificing to this idol. And he placed in Bethel the priest of the high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day of the 8th month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart, and he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. This is the king. Now, his son... Uh, Nadab, 1 Kings 15, 25 and 26. First Kings 15, 25 and 26. Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, began to reign over Israel. Sorry. Began to reign over Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah. And he reigned over Israel two years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in his sin which he made Israel to sin. So Jeroboam established the idolatry and his son walked in the same sin and led the people in the same sin. After Nadab Basha 1 Kings 15, 33 and 34. In the third year of Asa, king of Judah, Basha, the son of Ahijah, began to reign over all Israel at Tirzah. He reigned 24 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. So you see how we're getting in a, we're getting in a momentum here. After Baasha came Elah. 1 Kings 16, 12. 1 Kings 16, 12. Thus Zimri destroyed all the house of Baasha, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke against Baasha by Jehu the prophet. For all the sins of Baasha and the sins of Elah his son, which they sinned, in which they made Israel to sin, provoking Yahweh, God of Israel, to anger with their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Elah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? Elah. Zimri. 1 Kings 16, 15. In the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, Zimri reigned seven days in Tirzah. Now the troops were camped against Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines, and the troops who were camped and who were camped heard it. Um, yeah. Zimri has conspired, and he has killed the king. Therefore all Israel made Omri the commander of the army king over Israel that day in the camp. So Omri went up from Gibbethon and all Israel with him, and they besieged Tirzah. And when Zimri saw that the city was taken, he went into the citadel of the king's house and burned the king's house over him with fire and died. 
because of his sins that he committed, doing evil in the sight of the Lord, walking in the way of Jeroboam, and for his sin which he committed, making Israel to sin. Now the rest of the acts of Zimri and the conspiracy that he made, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? Okay, Omri, uh, verse 23, same chapter, 1 Kings 16, 23. In the 31st year of Asa, the king of Judah, Omri began to reign over Israel, and he reigned for 26 years. Sorry, he reigned for 12 years. Six years he reigned in Tirzah. He bought the hill of Samaria from Shemer for two talents of silver. He fortified the hill and called on the name of the city that he built Samaria after the name of Shemer, owner of the hill. Amri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. For he walked in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in the sins that he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their idols. Now, the last one we'll do is Ahab. Verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. It gets worse. And as if it had not been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. He took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal. You can tell that this is all mixed up with the worship of Baal, the king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. This is the king. Now, uh, that, of course, sets the stage for Elijah. And it makes me realize we're not even supposed to be talking about history in this session. We're supposed to be talking about restore the ancient anointing. So you can tell that, you know, I'm losing it. (laughs) So we'll do that next session. But this sets the stage for Elijah. So if the only thing we see about Elijah is, you know, he did, he called down fire from heaven, and we don't believe that anymore in our day. We miss the whole point of what's going on. What's going on is the people with whom God made an irrevocable covenant are being led into the worst forms of idolatry by their leaders. And God is going to respond to that by sending the prophet, the anointed servant of the Lord. And he is going to use this one person to call Israel back to faithfulness and holiness, one person. So it's in the midst of this evil that we have to understand the call on the prophet Elijah and the role that he played. So just hold that because we're coming back to that. 
Now, uh, what is what is the point of all this in 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 this history that we're talking about? Here's the point: we can have the idea that we have to really get it right. And the more we focus on the fact that we're really going to get it right, the more we see the other person over there hasn't gotten it right. Mm -hmm. And so we get into things like, well, let, let, me, let me ask you this. When you read this history, do you think, well, this means that this was no longer Israel. I mean, all this sin, all this idolatry, this must no longer be Israel. This is not Abraham. This is not, it doesn't sound like God's working with Abraham. It doesn't sound like God's working with Moses. It doesn't sound like God's working with Joshua. It doesn't sound like God's working with Samuel. It doesn't sound like God's working with David. This sounds really, I mean, this is clearly idolatry. I mean, God himself says that Ahab, for him it was a small thing to walk in the sins of Jericho. Mm -hmm. So it, it introduces us in a very powerful way to the fact that God's people are vulnerable. God's people are imperfect. God's people are wounded. God's people have not been pure throughout their whole history. There have been times of great waywardness and great sin and great apostasy. And in those periods, God has not abandoned his people. Now God has brought correction and even judgment. And one thing that this overview of history does not do for us, and it needs to do, is to somehow have something in there about the prophets. Because you see, we have the kings, but we don't have the prophets. And, and the prophets of Israel ministered roughly between 760 and 460. Elijah, although he's representative of the prophets, he's not one of the writing prophets. We don't have anything that Elijah wrote. But we have other prophets who were writing prophets. And we're going to just um, tap into them a little bit in the session that we're going to do, or the reading that we're going to do about God is righteous, we're going to tap particularly into Amos. And we, we, we will read when we read Amos, or when we read Jeremiah, or when we read Ezekiel, or when we read any of them. God calling his people back to holiness. And the prophet stepping forward, saying to the people, you have sinned against God. Return to God. So this is the core, this is the foundation of biblical prophecy. 
The foundation of biblical prophecy is not foretelling the future, although that's a part of it. It's not dramatic events, although Elijah certainly was involved in dramatic events. But it was the declaration that Yahweh is holy. It was the declaration that God's people have sinned against their God. And it was a calling of God's people to repentance and to return. And so the prophets play this incredibly powerful role there. Now this does introduce us also to the difference between the king and the prophet. And that introduces us to the difference between executive authority and spiritual authority. Elijah had almost no, or he didn't have any external authority. God called him to bring renewal. He called him to call the people of Israel out of this apostasy that their kings had led them into. He had no money. He had no social standing. He had no military standing. He had no government standing. He had no standing. He appears out of nowhere. All he has is the hand of God on his life. That's all he has. The kings had the palace, the budget, the army, the social standing, the power to give favors. They had all of that. And their authority was in contrast to the authority of the prophet. God is calling people today to carry this kind of authority. Mm -hmm. Spiritual authority. This is the authority that will take the kingdom of God into all the world. This authority. Spiritual authority. It does not have the external trappings. It is not dependent on the external trappings. If Elijah was al alive today, Ham and it, what, what would happen today if, Eli if Elijah was alive today and he went to, you know, a consulting firm? God has called me to bring the people back to uh, himself. You know, how do you recommend I go about it? Well, you know, you need a mission statement, and you need a vision statement, and you need to, some fundraisers, and you need some TV time. Elijah didn't have any of that. All he had was the hand of God on his life. So that taps us into the concept, restore the ancient anointing. And the ultimate example of that is the one who hung on the cross. Right there is the picture of spiritual authority. When we see him on the cross, we see him in his full authority. This is the authority of the king. Mm -hmm. He who could have called ten legions of angels submitted himself to a totally unjust death. 
carrying the sin and when he rose he didn't go to Pilate and see he didn't he wasn't motivated by retaliation he could have gone to Pilate he could have gone to Herod he could have gone to the Sanhedrin he could have gone to the chief priest and kind of rubbed their noses in him he didn't do that he appeared to the women in the garden he appeared to two of his apostles, disciples on the road to Emmaus. He went to his followers and reassured them. And he is the one who is taking his kingdom throughout the earth. So this is spiritual authority. That is what God is calling us to walk in, spiritual authority. That's what the kings of Israel did not walk in. So spiritual authority must be carried in godliness. God can't trust us with spiritual authority until we are being formed into his likeness. So, as we finish up with the history of Israel, <laughs> we finish up with the history of Israel, we finish the time of the kings. In the year 722, the northern kingdom is finally, God allows the northern kingdom to be invaded by the Assyrians. Samaria, the capital, is invaded, and the ten tribes are taken and scattered throughout the Assyrian Empire, known as the ten lost tribes of Israel. We don't know for sure what happened to them. The southern kingdom of Judah continued until there were three major deportations. They continued until the, until the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar. And the, um, the first deportation was the year 605. That's when Daniel and his three friends were carried along with the captives into Babylon. Daniel is another, of course, incredible example of someone who carried spiritual authority. Then uh, Jerusalem was attacked in 597, and ultimately Jerusalem was sacked in 586, and the rest of the people were taken into captivity. Now this is an incredibly important thing to understand because this is the beginning of the Jewish diaspora. What does it mean? It means descendants of Abraham who were given the land under Joshua to settle in the land are now removed from the land temporarily and they are scattered throughout the region in the Babylonian kingdom. Seventy years later, 539, the fall of Babylon to Cyrus of Persia, 538, the first return of the exiles to Jerusalem, Cyrus allowed the people to go back. Go back and rebuild Jerusalem. Go back and rebuild the temple. He allowed them to go back, but not all of them went back. 
And that's why we have the Babylonian Empire, we have the Medo-Persian Empire, we have the Greek Empire, particularly under Alexander the Great, we have the Roman Empire, these, these empires following one another in succession. And as those empires conquered the Middle East and ruled the Middle East, we have Jewish populations not only in Israel, but throughout the region. And those Jewish populations worshipped in the synagogue. They, in most cases, didn't come to the Jerusalem, although many of them did. Day of Pentecost, Jews from all over the region. But the important thing to know is that we have the Jews of the diaspora, as well as the Jews who are native, were native of Israel or returned to Israel. We have the same phenomenon today. The Jews of the diaspora and the Jews that are centered in Israel. And so then we just uh, finish up here, um, you know, the return of the exiles, the completion of the temple in, in Jerusalem, Queen Esther, and then we enter what is known as the intertestament period. There were over 400 years between the ministry of Malachi and um, the birth of Christ. So that period is known as the intertestament period. Now, um, let's take a minute to just ask if you have questions about all that. We've just done an awful lot in our fast time and we've introduced some ideas. Let's take, do we need to discuss any of that a little bit? If so, let's do that. What questions do you have about that? What thoughts do you have about that? Yeah, Julia. You know, I was interested as we were reading that to see that a lot of these northern kings that you were quoting reigned at the same time as King Asa in the southern kingdom, and he was the one that did right in the eyes of the Lord. And I was just wondering if we didn't really focus very much on the southern kingdom. And, you know, obviously they didn't set up the calves in that way, but somehow after Asa they also went astray. I just well, that's, that's certainly true. I, I don't know, Julia, any connection between that. Oh, right. Because the southern kingdom also had more kings that did evil mm -hmm. than kings yeah. that did good. And also notice that in the southern kingdom, when you get down to Josiah, over here at 628, Josiah was a king who instituted reforms, and he also was a great example of a king that used his influence to bring spiritual renewal to the people of Josiah. For example, the book of the law was found. Josiah got all the people together to read the book of the law. That's another example of the reading of the scripture. And another king that stands out from the southern kingdom is Hezekiah. You'll see he be began to reign in 715, another king that um, had great influence for God in the southern kingdom. I, I don't know of any connection between the godliness of Asa and the yeah. lostness of the others. I think the most important thing, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I, I, th I think the, the most important thing I was trying to show there was the um, dark periods of history among the people of God. We need to be informed about that, and we need to know how to handle that. 
I just like it. the fall of Samaria. I mean, like I knew the, the divided kingdom, but with the fall of Samaria, that that was the capital of the northern king, kingdom. I I didn't realize that, and then I was thinking about then in the New Testament such the like aversion, repulsion yeah, of Samaria, and I was thinking, I wonder if it's because of. They looked at is like the tribes of Judah looked at Israel like oh they were like and that sort of represented everything that they had done as a people that was bad and so then it was just I don't know it was just kind of I don't know that you know but anyway it just seemed no, that, that's a good, kind of an yeah. interesting yeah, where they, they got that well no that that's a good observation um, the the in, in the New Testament times the Samaritans had a religion that had some similarities with the religion of Israel, but um, also had some deviations. And so the Jews, good, the Jews look with contempt on the Samaritans. And the Jews were right in saying that their religious beliefs were wrong. They were correct in saying that. But, of course, we learn from Jesus they were not correct in the contempt. So this gives us an opportunity, your question gives us an opportunity to say God's chosen people have been the um, recipients of contempt for millennia. But they have also given contempt. That's also true. And so what we see with Jesus, of course, is that he did not have contempt for Samaritans. He, in John 4, particularly went through Samaria. He engaged the Samaritan woman at the well. He told the story of the good Samaritan. See, if we, if we don't understand the contempt that the Jews of Jesus' day had for Samaritans, we lose the whole punch of that story. Jesus told the story that the priest went on one side, the Levite went on the other side, but it was a Samaritan that stopped. So Jesus, Jesus taught and lived totally contrary to the contempt of his day for the Samaritans and for other people as well. Thomas, and then... Yeah, you mentioned this morning the idea of compulsivity. Yeah. And then this, you know, there's idolatry that's clearly established in what we just read. And I'm thinking that, you know, Berkeley <coughs> and Payne and Dallas Willard to a lesser extent have some connect seems like there's some connection between that, that idolatry can arise out of our compulsions, our compulsions can show us what our and idolatry is it seems like that one king, you know, who set it up because he was compelled to, in a sense, because of his fear that if he didn't, they would come worship. And so I'm just wondering, you know, it's a broad topic, but give me thoughts on that idea. You know, obviously it applies on a large scale here, but I think I can see it in my own heart, too. Well, Thomas, it's a broad subject, but it's a good subject. So let me try to say something helpful, and then see. We have a profound need to be loved. 
And God's design is that that need would be met by his love. And that need is met by his love as we dwell in his presence. Sin has separated us from that love. And that has left us, the human being, with this profoundly crippling emptiness. And so we try to fill the emptiness. We try to fill it with chemicals. We try to fill it with sex. We may try to fill it with gambling. We try to fill it with activity, with work. We may try to fill it with whatever. But the crying, the cry of the human soul in its losses is take away the pain, even for a short time. Take away the pain. And so we fall into our preferred way to take away the pain. And that very quickly becomes addictive. If it works to take away the pain, at least for a little while, if it worked yesterday, why not do it again today? And sin settles into our members. Romans 6 and 7. Sin settles into our members. We'll talk more about that when we do Revelation of the Heart. And it becomes subconscious. We don't know why we do what we do. But we just know it has an incredible power over us. Why? Because it blocks out the pain. For goodness sake. So that's the connection about compulsivity and sin and the need to heal the compulsivity in the presence of God. Now, did that come anywhere in the ballpark <laughs> responding to your question or not? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I'm just, I just was struck by what are the motivations of these kings for what they did yeah. and how similar are they to what I see in my own heart at times. Okay, the, the motivation I would suggest of Jeroboam was selfish ambition. So, um, let me just read you a verse from James. You don't have to turn there. Selfish ambition Look at the wisdom of these words. These words are almost prophetic. James 3.13 Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, godliness, Christ-likeness, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. A wisdom is meek. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Now, jealousy and bitter ambition go together. Because if I am ambitious to get do something or achieve something, then I'm going to be jealous of somebody else 
who's achieving what I want to achieve. Well, you say, for sure we're talking about the world here. We're not talking about Christians. Verse 15. This is not the wisdom that comes from above. It is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. It's demonic. That's a strong word. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder. Now, leader. You want to be a leader? You want to be a leader among God's people? If you are a leader among God's people and you have selfish ambition, you will create disorder. If you are a leader in the church and you have selfish ambition, you will create disorder in the church. Has the church ever known disorder? I mean, we got 2,000 years of history here. Has the church ever known disorder? The church has known massive periods of disorder. What is the root of that disorder? One root is selfish ambition on the part of the leaders, on the part of the top leaders. And when I say top leaders, if that makes you think of one particular section of the church, let me assure you that it's not unique to any section of the church. Because every section of the church, we'll talk a little bit more about that as we get into the Christian part of this history. Among us, there have been leaders who have been motivated by selfish ambition and they have caused disorder. That's what it says right here in James. But the wisdom that is, that is from above is first pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. That is the description of a godly leader. Godly leaders do not bring confusion. We as leaders are responsible not to bring confusion, but to bring peace. That is a responsibility of a Christian leader. Do not bring confusion. Protect the church from confusion. So, spiritual fathers, what does a father do? He protects his family. Protects his wife. He protects his children. What does a spiritual father do? He protects the people of God. And when leaders get into conflict because they're gripped with selfish ambition, that just produces chaos in the church. That doesn't mean it's not the church. But it means that God is going to intervene in that. And he's going to use those who he can trust to carry spiritual authority. They're people being conformed to the likeness of Christ. So is that in your heart, Thomas? I, 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 it's in my heart. I have operated in selfish ambition. Because my great need to be loved, my great need to be loved, okay, let's get back to that for a minute. This profound need that we have to be loved. We will do things to get people to love us. 
even if the word love is confused and distorted. We will do things to get people to affirm us. We will do things to get people to say nice things about us. We will do things to have uh, the approval of other people. Now, this is actually a form of idolatry. When I'm doing things in order to get you to tell me how good a person I am, that is idolatry. Why is it idolatry? I'm going to you to get a need met that only my Heavenly Father can meet. Only He can meet it. You can't meet it. I can't meet your need. I can be part of the meeting of your need. I can be God's vehicle to show love to you. But your need for love is so great, I can't possibly meet it. But your Father in Heaven can meet it. My need for love is so great you can't meet it. Hannah can't meet it. She comes closer than anybody else. <laughs> but she can't meet it. So when I bow before the approval of man, or I have in my heart selfish ambition, or I'm going after alcohol, or drugs, or sex, or whatever it is I'm going after, that's idolatry. We're looking for, to something else to meet a need that only God can meet. The good news is that He can meet it. Mm -hmm. The love of God is like the Pacific Ocean. And my need for love, compared to God's ability to meet it, is like a thimble. So I go and take a thimble full of water out of the Pacific Ocean of God's love, and my need for love is totally met. And there's a whole Pacific Ocean minus a thimble for your need. <laughs> so God can meet that need. God can meet that need. But when leaders don't have what we're talking about, it's bad. Yeah, a little bit. Um, it's, it's kind of, you, I think you've answered it in a large part. Um, I was just struck by a phrase that just a comment you made about Saul's life. It's a study of the consequences of carnality and leadership. Um, so my question was just maybe you could comment on, on that thought a little bit. Well, um, maybe a great way to do that is to compare the behavior of Saul and David. Yeah. Saul was king, but he was a carnal king. He was a king that ruled with selfish ambition. So he needed something done that only the priest could do, and the priest wasn't there, so he just did it himself. So he set himself up as the authority. And David was just a shepherd boy, and Saul became jealous of David to the point where he saw David as a threat and tried to kill David. So here is David. He's got the king trying to kill him. And the circumstances turn out where David and his men meet Saul asleep in a cave. 
And David's men say to David, David, this is the Lord. <laughs> Can you imagine that? This is God. He has delivered your enemy over to you. Here is Saul asleep. He's trying to kill you. David, do it now. And David says, I will not lift my hand against the Lord's anointing. Now what does that tell you about David? David was functioning under the authority of God. And David would not take anything for himself that God did not give him. And David knew that to take Saul's life, as bad as Saul was, as carnal as Saul was, he was the Lord's king. And so David said, I will not lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. That showed God that David was ready for spiritual authority. Because he would not carry that authority for his own purposes. He would only carry that authority for God's purposes. So Saul took things into his own hands. David refused to take things into his own hands. Now, as God gives us, somehow this has gotten into leadership, so I'm just trusting that this is from the Lord. As God trusts us with more and more leadership, God is going to be watching mm -hmm. to see if we can continue to function in submission to Him. And functioning in submission to God means functioning in submission to one another. That's why one of the main characteristics in 1 Timothy 3 of a bishop or an elder is his family. Does a leader know how to honor his wife and honor his children and lead his family in a way that is healthy? where his authority is there for their benefit, but not the unkind application of his masculine forces. So whether we're a masculine or feminine leader, the ability to carry our leadership in submission to others in the right way, it doesn't mean anybody can do anything they want to. It doesn't mean that. Godly leaders know how to submit to one another in love. So when you meet a godly leader, you will very quickly know whether or not they're godly by the way they react to other leaders. Because they're not trying to build their own kingdom. So and I think we're ready to close now. So I close with this picture. This is a picture of the kingdom. Here is a leader. And this leader has a circle of influence. People that are in that leader's influence. Can you picture that? 
Here's another leader. And that leader has a circle of influence. Here's another leader. And that leader has a circle of influence. Now, a person in this leader's circle of influence does not know a person in this leader's circle of influence. Never met each other. So if they meet on the street, they don't know whether they can trust one another or not. But when these two leaders, both of whom have a wide circle of influence, come together and relate to one another in humility, honoring one another is better than themselves, then all of a sudden these two circles of influence come together. Because the leaders are honoring one another, the circle of influence honors one another. Now we bring this leader, this leader honors these other two, all of a sudden all three of those circles, and the kingdom of God is a network of networks. It's not an up-down authority structure, but it is a movement of people under the godly leadership of their leaders. The leaders are loving one another and moving together in humility and honoring one another as better than themselves. It brings the people together and it brings beauty. It allows Jesus to live in the midst of his people. So that's a picture of the kingdom of God. And one final thing. That which holds the kingdom of God back is spiritual darkness. How do we break through the spiritual darkness? There are notes in ancient wells on spiritual battle. And the thesis of that teaching is we do spiritual battle. We <laughs> Grace. <laughs> we, <laughs> we, we do spiritual battle the way he did spiritual battle. So as we see him right now on the cross, he this is this is this is spiritual battle. This is the act that broke mm -hmm. the power of Satan. This act right there. So how do we today break through spiritual battle? Break through spiritual forces? When we have God's leader, or let's put it this way, when we have God's leaders come together in humility, in honoring one another as better than themselves, they have great power in prayer. What can we do? What would God do? What role would we have to create the way for God's leaders to come together across all the, you name it, this line separates this group from this group. This line separates this group from this group. This line separates this group from this group. What if God's leaders came together in humility and in honoring of one another, in prayer? I believe there would be great spiritual breakthroughs. So when it comes to mission, what do we want? Do we want the little payoff or do we want the big payoff? The big payoff 
is Christ-like people. And the really big prayer is Christ-like leaders. That sets us up for the next session. So let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for showing us in the scriptures the beauty of how you have worked among your people and also the sin that your leaders have committed and the sin that we know very, very well we have equal capacity for. And so we come not in self-righteous judgment, but in humility to ask you if you in your kindness and grace would form us to be like yourself. Lord, we pray that you will bring together leaders from the different Christian streams in humility Mm -hmm. and in the honoring of one another in prayer and in fellowship. Oh Lord, break down the barriers for your glory. Thank you for this time. Thank you, our Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to take a half hour talk.